Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Living the Question. It's based upon the lectionary readings for September 16, 2018. A quotation that's slowly becoming dear to me is this one from German language poet and novelist Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient, he writes, toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to love everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then, gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. I say slowly becoming dear because unsolved questions and locked rooms still cause me a great deal of anxiety. I aspire to love the questions themselves, but most of the time I ache for certainty. Just this week I sat in my spiritual director's living room and cried tears of grief and exhaustion for all that remains unsolved in my relationship with God. I'm tired of unmaking, I told her, tired of unraveling, tired of letting go. I want to grab hold again. I want to land I want to know. And yet somehow, despite my fears, Rilke's quote calls to me powerfully, perhaps because living the questions is dynamic, personal, and intimate, in a way that knowing static truth is not. To love the questions is to hold mystery and possibility close to my heart, to allow them to work on me, shape me, transform me. Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai puts it this way, From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard, but doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. In this week's Gospel reading, Jesus invites his disciples to live a question. Who do you say that I am, he asks them, as they make their way through the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Who am I? Where do I stand in this life we're making together? What do I mean to you? But wait, you might say, that's not the kind of question Rilke is talking about. That's a creed question, a heart of our faith question. It's a question we Christians know and must know the definitive answer to. Jesus is our Savior. He's Lord, Redeemer, King, Messiah, Christ, God, the only begotten Son of God. There's nothing unsolved about Jesus. Our Savior isn't a locked room. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, yes, he is. And yet, if this week's gospel reading has anything to say about it, we are still meant to live the question of who Jesus is, day by day and hour by hour. We're not meant to solve him once and for all. As hard as this might sound, we're not meant to land, to arrive, to hang tight. We're meant to journey. As St. Mark tells the story, Jesus, being an excellent teacher, prefaces his zinger question with an easier one. Who do people say that I am? In other words, what's a word on the street? What have you heard? What do the opinion polls reveal? I don't know about you, but I can just about hear the schoolboy relief and excitement in the disciples' voices. Ooh, ooh, this is an easy one. I know this one. As they scramble to answer Jesus' question. People say you're John the Baptist. No, 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 they say Elijah. More people say Elijah. No, lots of folks say one of the prophets. I've heard them talking about it. They're sure you're one of the prophets. I'm guessing they go on for a while, each trying to drown the other out with the most succinct and promising answer they can come up with. After all, this is solid ground. This is reportage. Clear, fact-based truth-telling. They can do this. Interestingly, Jesus neither affirms nor denies any of their answers. 
He simply listens to them, allowing the disciples to offer up everything they think they know, based on other people's expertise, as if to say, this is the place to begin. This is where all explorations of faith begin, in naming what we've heard, examining what we've inherited, and parroting back the certainties others have handed to us. These answers cost us little or nothing, so they're safe and benign. But of course, they don't offer us much in return either. They hearken back to history and tradition, and that's lovely. But there's no life in them, no intimacy, no fire. So Jesus presses on. Who do you say that I am? He asks next, looking at each disciple in turn. Meaning, forget about other people's theologies and interpretations. Put aside tradition and creed, valuable as they are, and consider the life we have lived together thus far. The bread we've broken, the miles we've walked, the burdens we've carried, the tears we've shed, the laughter we've shared. Who am I to you? Of course, St. Mark doesn't give us much detail about this scene, but when I imagine what happens next, I see the disciples falling into a long, awkward silence. I imagine them avoiding eye contact with Jesus, shuffling their feet, coughing, casting anxious glances at each other. I imagine every single one of them desperately hoping that someone else will answer. And I imagine Jesus standing patiently and vulnerably in their midst through that long silence, waiting to hear what his closest friends will say about him. Do they know him? Have they learned to trust his heart and his words? Do they love him? Cue Peter, bold, reckless, earnest, impetuous Peter. When the silence becomes unbearable, he throws himself forward and answers the question as confidently as he can. You are the Messiah. A perfect A-plus answer. The whole gospel story in a nutshell. The truth with a capital T. Right? Wrong. Or at least not quite. Because this is where the story gets weird. Instead of praising Peter's discernment, Jesus tells him to keep his mouth shut and immediately launches into a grim description of the suffering and death that await him in Jerusalem. He paints a picture so bleak, so upsetting, and so counterintuitive, Peter pulls him aside and tells him to knock it off. But this, Peter's insistence that Jesus fit into his watered-down comprehension of messiahship, hits a nerve so raw, Jesus turns and rebukes Peter in turn. What's more, he does so using words that shock us still two thousand years later. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. As strange and stinging as this exchange is, I love it. I love, first of all, that Jesus and Peter are intimate enough friends to survive a hard fight. Only friends who are powerfully bonded can tell each other off so harshly and live to tell the tale together afterwards. More importantly, I love that Peter's confession of faith, you are the Messiah, signals the beginning of his exploration of Jesus' identity, not its end. As soon as Peter thinks he has the answer to the question nailed down, Jesus shuts him up, challenges what he knows, and nudges him back to the starting line. Yes, I am the Messiah. No, you have no idea what Messiah means. In fact, you're not even ready to know what Messiah means. You can barely tolerate my talking about it. There's so much more for you to learn, Peter. So many more answers for you to grow into. Be patient. Don't force the locked doors. Try to love what is unsolved. Keep living the question. When I think about the whole of Peter's story, all the biographical details that we 21st century Christians have the privilege to know and ponder. I'm stunned by the answers that Peter must have lived into as time went on. Would you say that I am? You're the one who said, yes, come walk on the water with me. You're the one who caught me before I drowned. You're the one who washed my feet while I squirmed in shame. You're the one who told me, accurately, that I'd be a coward on the very night you needed me to be brave. You're the one I denied to save my own skin. You're the one who looked into my eyes when the cock crowed. 
You're the one who found me on the beach and spoke love and fresh purpose into my humiliation. You're my Messiah. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's a question to ponder for a lifetime, a question that has so many others folded into it. What stories of Jesus have you inherited? What truths about him do you need to say goodbye to? How might you be blessed by his loving rebuke? Is he merely the Messiah, or is he yours? But Peter learns in his encounters that Jesus is just as powerfully present in the questions as he is in the answers, maybe even more so. To love what is unsolved is not to deny Jesus his lordship. It is to allow Jesus to enter more deeply into your heart than any impersonal truth about him will ever do. Live the question. That's Jesus' invitation, and he makes it over and over again in love. For books this week, Dan reviews Persistence of Light by John Hoyt. It is a pleasure and a privilege for me to review this memoir by my friend John Hoyt, whom I have deeply admired since we first met over 20 years ago. When I finished his book, I was reminded that no one gets to choose the three most formidable influences on their life, nature, nurture, or family, and culture, but that in playing the cards that have been dealt to us, and in the mystery of history, every person has a story to tell. John's story just happens to be unusually interesting. John's father was a British-trained surgeon who went out to China as a medical missionary in 1913. In the early 1930s, he moved his family to the seaside town of Chefu, where John and his five siblings were enrolled in boarding school. His parents later moved 1,300 miles away to Lanchao, leaving behind their six kids, as was the missionary custom in those days. It proved to be a fateful choice. The six siblings were orphaned for five years at the outbreak of World War II and interned in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for almost four years. John was eight years old. Food was scarce. Conditions were primitive. The camp was secured by searchlights, guard towers, and guard dogs. Roll call was twice a day. Worst of all, it was in the prison camp that John learned that his mother had died of typhus in faraway Lanchao. John was 13 when he reunited with his father and returned to England in the strange world of English society, eventually matriculating at St. John's College at Cambridge University. It was at Cambridge in 1959 that John assembled a team of nine friends and an elephant named Jumbo to retrace the steps of the General Hannibal, who in the year 218 BC crossed the Alps with 30,000 troops and 37 elephants to battle Rome. Their 150-mile expedition received a worldwide press, including a spread in Life magazine. Four months later, John moved to California's Silicon Valley, where he worked for a little company called Hewlett-Packard. Six years after that, in 1966, he started his own optical instrument company called Spectrex, which he led for 50 years before selling it to his employees. Marriage, children, cancer, remarriage, and a blended family all followed. Through it all, John discovers the persistence of light, for he interprets his story through Isaac Newton's Seven Colors of the Rainbow. Indeed, as he writes, each color is unique and beautiful in its own way. For movies this week, Dan reviews The B-Side. After college graduation, Elsa Dorfman worked as a secretary and then as an elementary school teacher when a friend loaned her a Hasselblad camera. She was 28 and knew nothing about cameras or photography. But in the mystery of history, she thus found her lifelong vocation as a celebrated portrait photographer in her private studio. Dorfman was especially famous for her fervent devotion to the old-school, large-format Polaroid 20x24 camera, only six of which contraptions are left in the world. I owe my life to the Polaroid, she says in this winsome 76-minute documentary by Errol Morris. 
Morris lets Dorfman reminisce about her unlikely life and work that began with her selling her prints from a shopping cart in Harvard Square for two dollars. A significant part of her story includes her deep friendship and many photographs of the poet Allen Ginsberg. I titled the movie comes from Dorfman's practice of taking only two shots of her subjects because of the instant developing Polaroid film. She then let her customers choose which shot they wanted and she kept the B-side mistake, as she puts it. And what will become of her extensive archives that are a photographic feast at the center of this film? I don't have a clue, she says. Boston is full of photographers who worry about that. I watch this film on Amazon streaming. And finally, for poetry this week, Flickering Mind by Denise Levertov. Lord, not you. It is I who am absent. At first, belief was a joy I kept in secret, stealing alone into sacred places, a quick glance and away and back, circling. I have long since uttered your name, but now I elude your presence. I stop to think about you in my mind at once like a minnow darts away, darts into the shadows, into gleams that fret unceasing over the rivers purling and passing. Not for one second will myself hold still, but wanders anywhere, everywhere I can turn. Not you, it is I who am absent. You are the stream, the fish, the light, the pulsing shadow, you the unchanging presence in whom all moves and changes. How can I focus my flickering, perceive at the fountain's heart, the sapphire I know is there. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 16th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.